Thanks, Ashley, for reading the Bible for us. It was a rather long reading, but thank you for reading it so well. Um, let's pray as we come to think about this part of the Bible. Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word, and we pray that as we look across two kings today, we ask that you would uh, remind us of the seriousness of sin, that you would reassure us with the faithfulness of your word, and that you would reassure us with our hope, with Jesus as our king. We pray in his name. Amen. We all like to think that we can learn from our own mistakes, don't we? For example, if you're caught by a speed camera on Marshall Lane, you won't make that mistake again, will you? We do like to think that we'd learn from our mistakes, but then there's this stubbornness about us that means we think that, well, next time we try the same thing, it'll be different. But of course, it won't be different. It's just the same. Sin is like that, isn't it? It's predictable and boringly predictable as we stupidly repeat the same sin time and time again. We like to think that we learn from our mistakes, but too often that's not the case. We can learn from other people's mistakes, can't we? Not being the eldest uh, sibling has its advantages. You can watch your older brother be caught um, making mistakes um, and learn that well, learn how to avoid getting caught yourself doing the same things. Seriously, though, you'd have to be pretty stupid not to learn from other people's mistakes. But we do that too, don't we? We see others' mistakes and we go ahead and make the same mistakes, do the same thing, thinking that for us somehow it would be different. Sin is like that. As we somehow convince ourselves that if we do the same thing, it will have different implications. Sin is stupid like that, as well as boring and predictable. We like to think that we would learn from our own mistakes. We like to think that we'd learn from other people's mistakes, but too often we're a goose, aren't we? The New Testament encourages us to read the Old Testament with a view to learning from the mistakes made in the past. As New Testament Christians, we are in an extremely privileged position. We know that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises. Jesus is a better prophet than Moses and Elijah. Jesus is a better priest than any of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a better king than great King David. In Jesus, God has dealt with sin and its consequences. God's made it possible for sinners to be declared righteous. God has made it possible for us to dwell in his place, in the place um, as his people in the place that he's prepared for us, with all the blessings that he has planned. So as New Testament Christians, we are in a privileged position. And we can look back at the Old Testament knowing that everything they looked forward to, everything they hoped to, hoped for, we have in Jesus. Um, as you look back in the Old Testament, at the prophets in the Old Testament, at the people in the Old Testament, all they could see of God's plans and God's purposes was a shadow of the reality, incomplete snippets of what God had promised. Listen to how um, Peter explains it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter is writing to encourage Christians who are enduring trials. So in verse 6 of chapter 1 he says, In all this you greatly enjoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief of all, in all kinds of trials. He reminds them of the gospel that they've accepted and then he goes on to say to talk about the prophets in the past. Verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you 
searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And then verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. As New Testament Christians, we are in an extremely privileged position because we see the full picture, we know the full story. And the New Testament expects that we will learn from the mistakes of the people of Israel. Um, Consider the way the Apostle Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, he reminds the Corinthians um, how God saved the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, making them his people, but then he didn't hesitate to judge them when they failed to trust and obey. So in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5 we read, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were, were scattered in the wilderness. God was not afraid to judge them even though he saved them made them his people verse 6 now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did here the the new testament telling us to learn from the mistakes made in the old testament to learn how sinful our hearts can be and jump down to verse 11 these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Hear the echo of 1 Peter. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, um, we have so many privileges, but we are to learn from the examples of the past. These things in the Old Testament happened as examples. They were written down to teach, to instruct, and to warn us. We've been studying the Old Testament book of, books of 1 and 2 Kings, and as we read, we see this spiralling decline of the nation of Israel. Um, The nation, it was at its peak under David and then Solomon. But the boring, predictable nature of the sinful hearts meant that the kingdom became divided. And once it was divided, it started spiralling further into sin, resulting in firm judgment from God. And so 1 and 2 Kings shows us the frustratingly predictable nature of sin as time and time again, people repeat the same stupid mistakes of wandering away from God and following after idols. And time and time again, God passes judgment. He must, because he is a just God. So we've read 1 and 2 Kings with Deuteronomy chapter 17 in the back of our minds, with 2 Samuel 7 in mind, the promises to King David. We've seen that God is faithfully working out his promises to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. We've seen God remain faithful to his promises and his commitment to David, despite the sin of human beings. Uh, We saw last week in 2 Kings chapters 1 through to 17 that even in the darkest of days, God is still at work, speaking through his word, bringing life in big and small ways. Despite stupid, ongoing sin, God's word remains faithful and true. Um, The events recorded for us in 1 and 2 Kings Um, would originally have been written down for the benefit of the exiles from Judah, the exiles in Babylon, who, um, so that they would be able to understand why they've ended up there in Babylon, why God has judged them in this, in this way, so that they would know, um, so that they would learn from the sins of Israel, so that they would know that God's word remains true despite sin, and so that they might keep continuing to trust in the promise of a king who will come.
So these things were written down for the exiles, but as New Testament Christians, they were written for us too. As we read 1 and 2 Kings, um, we need to be thinking about it in three levels. Firstly, we've got to understand what exactly happened. Keeping in mind that the narrator is recording things purposefully, choosing what to include and what not to. So secondly, we, as well as understanding exactly what happened, we, secondly, we need to understand the lessons for the exiles, the implications for them, what they should be learning from it. And thirdly, the lessons for us as New Testament Christians, which may be different from the exiles at various points because we need to consider kings, one and two kings, in the context of the rest of the Bible and we need to read it knowing all that we know about Jesus, God's forever king. So you can see from your sermon outline that as we read these at these three levels, there's three things that hit home for us in one and two kings. Firstly, there's the true nature of sin. And secondly, there's the faithfulness of God's, God's word. And thirdly, there's the hope that we have in King Jesus. These three things keep echoing through and being reinforced for us. So let's consider the lessons to be learned from the demise of Judah. Last week, um, we had the shortest possible overview of chapters 1 to 17. Come back in your Bibles. I won't put this on the screen for you to read. Come back to chapter 17 and look at the account of the demise of Israel. Remember, this is where we're at um, with all the kings of the north and the kings of the south. It's under Hoshea, King Hoshea, that things eventually and finally come apart in the north. So have a look at 2 Kings 17. Let me read a few verses from the beginning of the chapter. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned for nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmanasseh, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hoshea, um, who had been Shalmanasseh's vassal and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hoshea was a traitor, for he'd sent envoys um, to So, king of Egypt, and he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore Shalmanasseh seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marching up against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala, in Gozan, in the river, on the river Habor, and in the towns of the Medes. What you have here in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 to 6, is the political summary of events. What happened? Then the narrator gives a theological explanation. This is why these things are happening from God's point of view. It's much longer. It goes from verse 7 through to 23. So let me just pull out a few bits. So verse 7, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practice of the kings of Israel had introduced. Um, this is why judgment has come on them, because of these sins. Um, jump down to, uh, to verse 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers Turn from your evil ways, observe your, my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. There it is, the stubbornness of sin. That is why um, judgment has come upon them. 
That is why uh, Assyria has come in, come down on them, and will take them away. Um, Jump down to verse 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them out of his presence. Then he tore Israel away from the house of David. They made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. This is God explaining um, why these events have happened. He goes back to Jeroboam, who came after Solomon, remember. He's the one who put um, the the golden calves in Dan and in, in Bethel. Um, Verse 22, the Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they are still there. A little reminder that this is being written in the exile, for the exiles, so that understand why these events have happened. That's the account of events. And it's written... um, for the exiles to understand why this has happened and written as an example for us too. To learn about the nature of sin, the stubborn nature of sin, the predictable nature of sin, and the seriousness of God's punishment against sin. But as we read on, this is all written to remind us again of God's faithfulness to the promises he's made and to every word he's spoken. So, chapter 17 to 1 to 6 gives you the political summary of events. Verses 7 to 23 give you the theological explanation. And then verse uh, verse 24 picks up again um, with an explanation of events. Not only did Assyria um, take the Israelites away, they also backfilled. They also repopulated the towns of Israel with other peoples, which explains why when you come to the New Testament, you have the Samaritans, these mixed people. Um, interbred leftovers of the northern kingdom of Israel, sort of worshipping Yahweh, but not. That's where they come from. But that's another story for another day. Chapter 17, that was the demise of Israel. Today we're actually looking at um, chapters 18 through to 25, so let's consider them now as you think about the kings in the south and the demise of Judah. Chapter 18 takes us back a few years to the third year of Hoshea, Um, king of Israel, tells us us that at that point Hezekiah becomes king um, in Judah. We're told in um, 18 verse 3 that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Um, Hezekiah, he does begin really well. In fact, in verse 5, he's praised for how good he, he was, how well he followed the Lord. And 18 verses 9 to 12 recaps what we've already seen in in chapter 17, that Shalmaneser of Assyria came against Israel and captured um, Samaria. 18 verse 13 explains that 10 years later, Sennacherib of Assyria, another king of Assyria, comes against Judah this time, capturing the fortified cities so that Hezekiah, we're told, stripped all the gold off the temple and gave it to Sennacherib to kind of keep him at bay. But in 18 verse 17 and following, we're told that Sennacherib's forces kept advancing to Hezekiah's doorstep in Jerusalem. We're given the details of this verbal exchange from the Assyrian commander, shouting out in Hebrew even, in the hearing of the people, um, uh, no doubt in a way that was intended to undermine any hope or any confidence they may have had in their king or in their God, challenging them 
and their trust in the Lord. And in chapter 19, we're told that Hezekiah, he goes to the temple of the Lord and sends for Isaiah the prophet. And as you read, you discover that this time, the Lord, he mercifully intervenes. Hezekiah and Judah, they're spared from the Assyrians. And so chapter 20 tells us of a time when Hezekiah was extremely unwell and the king of Babylon sent envoys. He heard the king of of Judah was unwell and sent his envoys. And it reads as if Hezekiah received these envoys and kind of shows off and shows them all the wealth of his storehouses and the wealth in the temple as if bragging about it. To which Isaiah the prophet responds in chapter 20 verse 16 by saying, Hear the word of the Lord. Time will come when all this wealth will be taken away to Babylon as well as many of your sons and descendants. But Hezekiah is told it won't happen in his lifetime. Now, as we read this, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that is exactly what happens. Babylon will come against Judah. They will be taken into exile. And we can see that as the narrator records this for us, we can see the faithfulness of God's word. God's word will not fail. Hezekiah, he's followed by Manasseh, King Manasseh of Judah. We're told in chapter 21, verses 1 to 2, that Manasseh reigned for, 20, uh, for 55 years, a long reign, and we're told that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, Manasseh is like the Ahab of the south. King Ahab of the north was a terrible king. Manasseh is the worst king they ever had in the south, and his actions seal the fate of Judah. Chapter 21, it lists off the evil that King Manasseh did, including the fact that he built altars in the temple of the Lord. Um, In verse 4, it says he sacrificed his own son in verse 6. Look at the result of all this. So verse 10, uh, 21 verse 10, The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He's done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. It's like I will judge Judah as I judged Israel because of Ahab. Manasseh sealed the fate for Judah. It is interesting that when you read 2 Chronicles, chapter 33, the chronicler records an amazing repentance on the part of Manasseh. But the narrator here in 2 Kings does not tell us anything of that at all. Because I think the narrator here is more concerned about the nation as a whole. And the fact that Manasseh, King Manasseh, has led them beyond the point of any return. The, uh, the reign of Manasseh shows the reality of, God's, uh, of sin and of God's judgment against sin. That's what the narrator wants us to see. The fact that Manasseh may have repented isn't the key point in his account of events. It's not the main lesson for the people in exile. They need to understand how serious sin is and how serious God's judgment is. Amon follows uh, Manasseh. Uh, Chapter 21, we're told little about him. He too does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then comes Josiah. We're told Josiah did what was right, in the eyes of the Lord. Josiah was amazing, but all his good did not change the fate for Judah. The Lord in his kindness, what he does is he spares Josiah the pain of seeing all that will come to pass. 
Uh, you may remember way back, it's a long time ago now in our series, but way back in 1 Kings chapter 13, when Jeroboam was kind of um, uh, christening his, his altar in Bethel with sacrifices, a man of God came and spoke a word of the Lord against the altar. The man of God, the unnamed man of God who speaks against the altar, says a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you, I'm talking to the altar, on you, he will sacrifice the priests of the high places. This is the Josiah that God spoke about through this man of God way back. And as the narrator records these events, the readers in exile in Babylon should be amazed at the way the word of the Lord prevails through all those years. Along comes Josiah in the line of David. As these things have been recorded and preserved for us, we too can learn that we can trust God's word. What God says is true. Back to Josiah, 2 Kings chapter 20, uh, 22, verse 20. All that he achieves through all his good is that he'll be spared having to watch God judge the people. So if you look at verse 18 of chapter 22, Tell the king of Judah... Who sent, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, um, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. Josiah, one of the good kings, but he couldn't reverse the damage that's already done by Manasseh and others. Along comes Jehoahaz, who follows Josiah in chapter 23, verse 31. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoiakim follows Jehoahaz in chapter 23, verse 36. He too does evil. During Jehoiakim's reign, we're told in chapter 24 that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. Jehoiakim becomes a vassal, but he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, and so raiders are sent in and they destroy um, Judah. Chapter 24, verse 3, we read, Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. You can see God keeping his word. You can see God's word prevailing. You can see God's judgment against sin. Um, Jehoiachim followed Jehoiakim in chapter 24, verse 8. We're told he did, does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem again in 24, verse 10, laid siege to it. Jehoiachim, he surrendered. And Nebuchadnezzar took him prisoner in verse 12. And as the Lord had declared in Hezekiah's day, the king of Babylon took all the wealth and all the treasures from the city and from the temple and from the palace. Nebuchadnezzar took the best of the land and the best of the people. And he even took the fighting men and took them into exile. Nebuchadnezzar made Jehoiachin's uncle, uh, Matanai, king in his place. And he renamed his name to Zedekiah. And that's where the reading that Ashley read picks up. Zedekiah... It's a foolish man. He rebels against the king of Babylon. And so we're told um, Babylon verse twenty in chapter 25 came down hard on him and on the people left in Jerusalem. And we have that sickening verse in 25 verse 7. They killed 
the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put out his eyes, bound him in bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Chapter 25, it slows down. gives us all the gory details of what happened, recounting the way that Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord were dismantled and destroyed. Reading this in the exile, the people would have been saddened and sobered by the reality of sin and the reality of judgment. Then in 2 Kings 25, verse 22, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah over the people that remained. But even then, their stupid hearts continue to rebel. And in 25, verse 25, Ishmael and 10 others, they assassinated Gedaliah, causing practically everyone else to flee to Egypt in fear of the Babylonians. They fled to Egypt, the place where God brought them out of slavery to make them his people. But then, at the end of Two Kings, as things are wrapping up, we jump ahead to 27 years into the exile, where it's reported that um, the last non-puppet king in Judah um, is released from captivity and able to share food with the king. He lives somewhat of a, a much more pleasant life in Babylon. A small thing. But as the exiles realised what was happening, a small thing that would have given them hope, real hope, that this line of David would continue, that there's still hope for Israel. Hope that we know is worth having, hope that is fulfilled. Um, We have stepped very quickly through chapters 18 to 25 of 2 Kings, thinking about the lessons to be learned by the people in exile in Babylon at the end of this story, and thinking too about the lessons for us to learn. Let's pull things together um, by thinking a little bit more about three things. Firstly, the true nature of sin that you see through this narrative. I mean, sin, it can be attractive, tantalizingly attractive. Doing things our way instead of God's way can be so appealing. But time and time and time again, we're shown in these closing chapters of Two Kings, the futile, foolish and predictable nature of sin. And we know this. We, we can see it in life around us. Um, sin, it can be so appealing to think it's boring to be godly, we think. But then as you go ahead and do what you know you shouldn't do, you realise the futility and the predictability and the fut- and, of sin. And we realise too that this true nature of sin that requires God's judgment. God must punish sin because he is a just God. So as we look across two kings, yes, it rams home for us the seriousness of sin, the true nature of sin, the futility of sin, the stupidity of sin. The second thing that keeps jumping out at us is the faithfulness of God's word. Time and time again through the narrative, we're told that events took place according to the word of the Lord, according to the word of the Lord. God is faithful to every word he's ever spoken. God's word will prevail. God's word must prevail. And as God's creatures, we must obey. We must trust and obey God's word and live for him. And so that sinks through for us as we look across this narrative. And the third thing is the hope that we have in Jesus. As we read through 1 and 2 Kings and see all these Kings who fail because of the sinful hearts we have. 
He makes us appreciate the hope that we have in King Jesus. God's mercy echoes through this recounting of all these events. Yes, God must punish sin, but all the while he's merciful. He continues to give second chances. And as we keep reading on through the Bible, we see King Jesus arrive in the line of David without a hint of Ahab or Manasseh about him. A servant king, a sovereign king, a king who gives his life for his people. Great King David's greater son, um, the king in the line of David who will rule forever. Yeah, we like to think that we can learn from our own mistakes. We like to think that we can learn from other people's mistakes. The New Testament, the New Testament tells us that we need to learn from these mistakes of the people of Israel. We need to learn about the seriousness of sin, the faithfulness of God's word, and our hope needs to be in our Lord Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the way that it still speaks to us today. Lord, we thank you for your kindness. Thank you that though our sinful hearts deserve um, the full force of your wrath, thank you for the way that you've made it possible for us to know new life and forgiveness through Jesus' death in our place. Lord, please keep working in us. Please keep helping each one of us to live with Jesus as our saviour and as our king. We pray in his name. Amen.